Jonathan Pajot has made a typically informed and informative response to Sam Harris's mocking question, where is heaven? Sam Harris has made the Yuri Gagella move, the first man into space, who got up there on the satellite, looked about and said, whatever is up here, heaven isn't. And Jonathan Pajot draws on the way that the ancient mind thought of earth and heaven not as physical places so much as experiences of reality and where earth is the potential manifesting sprouting towards the actual so earth reaches towards heaven and he also drew a lot on the notion of hierarchies and so why the analogy of up rising mountains sky um, is often used to express this different perception of reality in the movement from earth to heaven. And I wanted to add a complementary thought to that, which I think might be quite useful for now, because alongside the metaphors of upward movement in terms of moving towards the heavens, the tradition also deploys inner directionality. For example, Jesus himself talked about the kingdom of God being within you. He recommends more times than any other that we pray in secret, that we withdraw, and there you will find the Heavenly Father. And of course in the wilderness too, it's a time apart which speaks of withdrawal to a quieter place where realities that aren't so evident in the noisiness of the day start to emerge and inner life that's always around us but can be occluded by the noisiness of the day. Even the ascension, so-called into heaven, can be read at different levels because the notion of a cloud appearing and Jesus withdrawing into that cloud, as Luke puts it, can represent not necessarily a going up, but a disappearing into the very presence that's all around us. And a more horizontal, you might say, notion of Jesus's departure into the depth of things rather than above and over all things. And so I wanted to reflect particularly on the Platonic tradition and also Dante's sense of these things, because Jonathan Pajot talked quite a lot about Dante in his response, and begin with Plato. And to make the comment that whilst Plato's symposium, where Diotima speaks to Socrates of what she calls the higher mysteries, and in particular of the way in which love can lead to the beautiful itself appearing, this is often described as the ladder of Diotima or the ascent of Diotima. But when you actually read the text in Plato's Symposium, you realise that there's no talk of going up, out, over at all. But while, rather, it's a process that Diotima encourages in Socrates to become more and more attentive to what he's loving. And that subtlety, that inner space, opens up as he proceeds along these high mysteries of love, at the end of which the beautiful itself becomes apparent to him. Now, Josma actually sets this up 
um, by remarking that these higher mysteries contrast with the lower mysteries. And the lower mysteries of love are the way that in more mundane life, people seek, you might say, to bring heaven to earth in their lives. She talks about the mistakes people make when they do this by, say, seeking fame. And fame creates an illusion of being bigger than others, better known than others, more long-lasting than others. And so these qualities of long-lastingness, spreading your influence and so on, are pseudo or proxy manifestations of what might be associated with heaven manifest on earth. She talks too about wealth as well, about how wealth can bring glory, riches, abundance into life. But of course they're material glories, riches and abundance. And so again are pseudo heavens, not real heavens. And the lower mysteries is to realise that. But then Diotima says to Socrates, perhaps you're capable of the higher mysteries too, which is the more subtle, but also the truer path. And so describes to Socrates this inward turn, this investigation of the qualities of love in the experience of loving that can lead him towards that which is more and more beautiful to the beautiful itself. thought I could read a bit of Diotima's remarks from the translation by Alexander Neamas, who offers, I think, one of the best translations of the symposium where this comes out. So Diotima says to Socrates, First, if the leader, if loving, leads aright, the one who's been led by loving, should love one body and beget beautiful ideas there, then he should realise that the beauty of any one body is brother to the beauty of any other, and that if he is to pursue beauty of form, he'd be fairly foolish to think that the beauty of all bodies is one and the same. When he grasps this, he must become a lover of all beautiful bodies, and he must think that this wild gaping after just one body is a small thing and despise it. So this is to reflect on, say, the nature of infatuation. You become preoccupied with one person and the way that they look. And if you're not to stay in that gripped, rather infantile state, thinking that this one person has all the answers to everything, part of what's got to happen is to realise that this infatuation is actually initiated a wider search within you and so to convert that early energy into the wider search and foster what Diotima calls beautiful thoughts within yourself so it's awakening something within you it's as much an interior journey now rather than the initial outward desire to grab the beautiful body that first awoke this possibility within you the interiority is already becoming manifest. But Diotima carries on and explains to Socrates that the beautiful bodies of around that are around us, the embodiments, the manifestations, the earthly that are around us, they themselves speak of that which is even more beautiful. And so Diotima invites Socrates to consider how love can awaken delight in beautiful activities, beautiful laws as it's translated here. Laws really means patterns in the ancient world. It's more like purpose, that which draws us, that which is the direction of travel in life. Um, there's no conception of scientific laws at the time. And so what this is doing is taking 
the invitation to consider the heavenly, the lovingly, more and more intangibly, but at the same time powerfully in the world by understanding the subtleties that are awakening within you. These are almost like the angels that can be present, that we're engaging with, inviting into, communicating with through the act of this growing sense of loving, known within us, felt, experience, discernment with the eye of the imagination, intuition, inspiration, you might say, as well as perceiving that they're in the world around us. But with the sense that this isn't a metaphor that is talking about stepping above the world, over the world, beyond the world, but more deeply into the world and seeing that the earth is but the immediate manifestation of these deeper patterns that can be revealed to us by understanding love more and more subtly. And Jotima says to Socrates as she continues to unpack this, try and pay attention to me, keep up with me, don't lose this subtlety. Because what will happen is that all of a sudden, exaphanes is the Greek word, one of these wonderful onomatopoeic words in the Greek, all of a sudden the goal of loving, as she puts it, will appear into view. Love for Plato is a go-between God, a go-between energy that leads us in a particular way when we discern it aright. And all of a sudden, the goal of loving will form in, fall into view. And that's beauty itself. That is changeless, that is timeless, that radiates and gives its form to all other things that share in the beautiful and of course this becomes a powerful metaphor when monotheism emerges and people draw on platonism to understand that now just one other comment this word exaphanes is actually subsequently used by diotima um, because after diotima has talked about these higher mysteries to socrates and asked him to consider whether she had he has followed what she's been saying alcibiades comes into the room at the end of the symposium and joins them around the table as they drink and sing and talk about love. And it's said that Alcibiades suddenly, all of a sudden, springs into view. Exaphanes, the same word is used again. And I think what Plato is saying here is that don't be mistaken. All sorts of powerful, seemingly wonderful, beautiful things that you desire, that you love, can spring into view in your life. And like the drunken Alcibiades, they can lead you astray, which is once more to stress that it's the inner discernment of what's happening in manifest and even in your inner life that is really key. And if you haven't discerned that right, you'll be stuck with mundane things in matters of loving as much as anything else, rather than being drawn towards heavenly things and the beautiful in itself. Though they are around and about, pressing in, forming, calling us quite as much, even more, as anything else in life. So that was the first thought, that in the Platonic tradition, it's not actually at root the metaphor of ascent that Diotima certainly offered Socrates, as Socrates tells us. Rather, it is an inner turn, discerning on the powerful forces that 
flood through us in life, in particular these forces of desire and love and yearning and wanting. And if we can discern them aright, then we gradually become more and more capable of the intangible, formative powers that are around and that they will lead to more intimate participation in beauty itself. That's what it is to know heaven here and now, let alone in the hereafter. And a similar pattern is taken up by Dante and developed in an even more nuanced way than originally in Plato. I think that is because Plato stands at the beginning of a tradition that is beginning to stress how the individual can know of these things rather than say the collective shared tribe the religious practices that draw you to a particular place that take you through rites at certain times of the year um, external manifestations of religion plato stands at the beginning of a tradition that is stressing the inward manifestations of what we might now call the mystical the esoteric the spiritual path and dante a millennium later has developed that all the more. And so in the paradise, which Jonathan Pajot talked about, whilst there is some use of the idea of ascent and going up, more powerful, I think actually, and more important in terms of Dante making the journey and communicating how we too can make that journey, is again, the path of inner discernment. And the way this works, I think, is that in the paradise, Dante moves through these planetary spheres in the heavens. So beginning with the moon, then Mercury, Venus, the sun, then Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, to the constellations, the fixed stars, and then the prima mobile, which leads to the Empyrean, the divine presence unmediated itself. But these seemingly rising planetary spheres are actually triangulated. And what Dante, I think, reveals in his conversations with Beatrice is that the way to understand this is that the different planetary lights participate in the one divine light in different ways. And so when you participate in the one divine light in a way that corresponds with the planetary light, you are in that planetary heaven. So it's a uh, inward subtle again discerning your experience what is speaking to you what's drawing you that counts and this is shown partly in the way that dante describes the movement through the paradise because whilst initially there is a, a sense of going up leaving the heavenly the, the earthly eden at the top of mount purgatory very quickly that movement becomes actually an unfolding what happens is that as Dante becomes conversant with the lesson, you might say, of one heavenly sphere, he finds himself already in the next heavenly sphere. And so it's his mind opening up and re reality becoming more conscious to him, therefore, that is the passageway through the paradise. And the sense of going up actually is increasingly dropped. So what happens is that there's this series, particularly of seven lessons through the seven planetary spheres, just to touch on them very quickly, to give a sense of how 
Dante not only understands his own journey into the heavens, but wants to show us how we can journey into the heavens too. And so answers this question, where is heaven, by inviting us to go there, in fact. And so what happens is in the first planetary sphere of the moon, Beatrice offers Dante one particularly vivid way of thinking about the lesson of the moon when she says, imagine you're standing in front of a candle and then in front of you are three mirrors at varying distances. So what you'll see in the mirror is your own reflection, but the further the mirrors are away, the smaller the reflection will become. Now you might think that what is the most valuable reflection is the one nearest to you because your face will be bigger, it'll be brighter, it'll be clearer. That's the way that we're inclined to think about how to see things. But when it comes to the inner things of the heavens, you must learn that actually the subtler lights are often the most important. And so in the analogy, the mirror that's furthest away is the one that's gonna take you into a wider orbit. And so this lesson of the moon is one of the key first lessons that Dante has to learn, that he has to learn to follow the subtler lights now, if he's to journey further into the heavens, not that which screams and shouts, but that which can lead you into more nuanced perceptions of reality. The lessons continue in the sphere of Mercury. The mercurial light is said to share, participate in the divine glory the gloriousness of divine light, but we human lights are quite inclined to feel competitive with that divine glory. And so Dante must learn in the sphere of Mercury to follow the true glory, not just the glory as it's manifest in the souls that he meets in himself. Again, a kind of learning to track back to the source, not just that which is most immediate. In the sphere of Venus that comes next, the sphere of love, he must learn about the true nature of love, not just love as it's morally governed commonly on earth. And so the figures that Dante meets in the sphere of Venus are, you might say, true lovers who on earth might have even been condemned. They're figures who had rather colourful love lives. Uh, even Rahab of Jericho, the prostitute, is one of the great figures celebrated in the sphere of Venus. And this is all saying, don't look at the surface and judge people's love lives just by their behavior. You've got to understand something of the spirit of love in order to continue this journey. The inner nuanced subtlety again, they come to the sphere of the sun, a pivotal sphere in the seven, the fourth of the seven. And that's significant because there, Dante meets figures who spoke brilliantly like the light of the sun about divine matters on earth but disagreed too in fact condemned each other as heretics as Thomas Aquinas the key figure he meets there did of Sigar of Brabant a champion of Averroist Islamic thinking on earth but what Dante has to realize that their disagreements on earth can be understood as differing takes on the one divine light and it's their passion that Dante must discern because that passion is a channeling of the subtler divine light. So again, a movement away from the obvious, the immediate, the literal in this case to the spirit that lies behind things can lead him into the spirit of the sun and immediately he's grasped that, he finds himself in the sphere of Mars. 
Mars is about sacrifice and rather than being again the kind of literal sacrificing of your life as in the Martian figures associations with war this is about letting go of the self more and more that will want to hold on to life in order to step into a wider and wider life that becomes particularly important for Dante because when he comes down or I should say returns to more ordinary life he is going to face exile from Florence and so letting go of what he thought counted as his life is going to be really important for him if he's to stay in touch with the divine life that's still around whilst he's in exile and can feel like all is lost. It's an important lesson for us all who invest a lot in the tangible things of the earth and feel that the more of those we have, the closer we are to heaven. It's an easy mistake to make. Dante learns something about that in the sphere of Mars as he shares the Martian light. Then in the sphere of Jupiter, harmony becomes important. And what Dante learns there is that harmony actually is about the individuals becoming more and more themselves in the true sense of reflecting, sharing, participating in the divine light more and more. And then they become more and more one. It's a subtle business. The loss of self in the spiritual path is actually a growing of the true nature that we have, this individuality that became so important, I think, with the emergence of Christianity. You can put it like this, I think, in terms recognisably Christological, that your I amness and my I amness, we can all say I am now, becomes more and more fully true when it shares more and more in the divine I am, the oneness of God. And so this is a moment in the sphere of Jupiter when the harmonious participation of our souls with the divine life shows up more subtly for Dante. It's not about you disappearing into some kind of divine light in a sort of fudge of peace and contentment. Rather, it's actually about becoming more and more yourself and knowing more actively how you share in the divine life. So you become more yourself and part of the divine light at the same time. You know, it's why I think figures that communicate the divine to us truly aren't kind of blank canvases or smiling, seemingly neutral avatars, but are actually distinctive characters. And it's the very qualities that becomes part of their personality that at the same time channels more and more self-evidently. And so we love them and love all that they bring as well. Dante's learning that nuance and subtlety in the sphere of Jupiter. And then finally, in the sphere of Saturn, he has to learn about how the light which was kindled in him that has fired his desire for God can actually encompass him, can turn about. Um, it becomes very important in the latter stages of the paradise, particularly in relation to the figure of Mary, where she is the paradigm figure because she was able to say yes to all of life, particularly giving birth to Jesus, and so could enwomb the divine light, but knew herself now to be enwombed by that divine light as well. It's the inner and the outer 
coming to its fullest manifestation that Dante begins to encounter in the sphere of Saturn. So these are seven lessons that prepare Dante for entering then the Imperium proper. And they're all about understanding his own experience more and more, and so being able to share in wider and wider experience that is without him, but that he simultaneously knows more and more distinctly within him too. He learns about qualities, not quantities. He learns about how to understand the ways that he reflects the glory, but focus on the source of that glory. He learns about the true nature of loving. He learns about the spirit that lies behind the wonderful things that people say and to follow that spirit, not just stick to the things that are said. He learns about the true nature of sacrifice that lets go of life and enables us to participate more and more in life. Therefore, he learns about harmony and how if he becomes more and more himself, that's God-given, he will become more and more conscious of sharing in that divine I amness. And then this leads to another take, another nuance on that, which is about how that which he might in womb, in wombed him all along. And so he becomes more capable of entering the direct presence of God. I think Dante is saying, without losing himself, precisely the opposite. The strange thing about the relationship between heaven and earth, answering the question, where is heaven? is that it is at once around us, even above us, and certainly beneath us in the sense of the source of all things, but it's also within us. And it's when we bring that awareness of what's within and can connect it with that which is without, that we truly enter the domain that can be called the heavens.